Thank you very much. Uh, it's a, a pleasure to be here in um, Malaysia. I've been enjoying it very much. Uh, I like the diversity of cultures that you guys have here. You know, it's so nice, you know. We, our family and I, we were in Finland um, in the winter, uh, serving there, uh, helping with the different um, needs of, of health. And if you go to Finland, you need to do one thing. What is it? You need to go to a sauna bath. You know a sauna bath? In fact, the word sauna is a Finnish word. Okay? So we went to the sauna bath. It was the winter. It was minus 8 degrees Celsius outside. So we finished our sauna bath, and this is what we did. You can see there's snow there in the ground. That water is 1 degree Celsius. There's my daughter. <laughs> And there is my other daughter. <laughs> One degree Celsius, that water. <laughs> and there's my wife. <laughs> and that's me. <laughs> By the time I get out of that water, you can see everybody's gone. <laughs> Believe it or not, this is really good for you. Okay, this is very good for you, for your immune system. If you're good in your heart, you're fine. Don't go there if you have heart problems, you won't go out of that water, okay? <laughs> now, I live in Northern California. There's a, that's that place called Wimar Institute. Wimar Institute has people from all over the world, including people from Malaysia, okay? I have had students, uh, two of them already, from Malaysia. And we have um, a big campus there, and we have lots of trails. We have the New Start program where we help people reverse disease. We also have a depression program, which we, we help people overcome their depression. We have a little hotel where people can stay. We have a college, we have a farm, we have an academy, and People come from all over the world to get trained. Among the degrees that we offer, they include education, nursing, business administration, Christian psychology. We're going to start a master's in Christian psychology next year, theology, and also natural science. If you want to go and become a physician, a physical therapist, a dentist, you go and take those classes. We also have a six-month course that we can train you how to use health tools to make an impact in your community. Nice, practical, six-month course. And one thing that we're doing that um, Pastor Ted Wilson came to Weimar to start it is something that is called Total Community Involvement. And I want to show you a, a, a short clip, the audio there for the for the, for, for the computer. Um, I hope that you guys can start something like that here also. So let me show you. I'm tired of being a fake Christian. I'm tired of just going through the motions and not really practicing what I believe. 
we're college students. We hang out, we have fun, and we keep it pretty kosher. But at the end of the day, there's something missing. <laughs> to call ourselves Christians is not enough. We have to live like Christ. So one day a week, the institute as a whole, staff and students, take four hours out of their day to go do ministry. 100% dedicated to others. Even though it's only been a few weeks, it's already making a huge impact on our lives and on the campus. We decided to go help a lady who is actually a member of the Lions Club from Colfax. She works a lot with the schools and she actually needed some help herself in her yard. Fortunately, her husband passed away and actually three people died of cancer in her life recently. He's fallen on some hard times, unable to keep up with the yard, unable to do a lot of these different things. She really doesn't have anyone to help her out, so we decided to fill that gap. Nice! Oh, beautiful. <laughs> a lot of leaves. A lot of leaves here. You know, even though Reiki may not be the most glorious thing you can do, it's amazing how something so insignificant can make such an impact. Doing a fantastic job. I just... Why are you saying, why are you using the word fantastic? <laughs> <laughs> because I don't even recognize the place. I met Granny Sweet um, just as we were out doing outreach. We were giving, handing out flyers for a diabetes class, and she just started opening up and pouring out her life story. She has all of these deep questions that she's wrestling with. She's like, is God really there? And I don't know if I can believe in this God. He just has some perverse sense of humor because why would he let me go through all that I've been through? She shared with me that she was planning to move up to Oregon and take off and just try to find a better life up there. And I said, hey, well, I could bring some friends over. We'd be happy to help you out, move all your stuff and pack. And she was just like, really? Really, would you guys do that? Let's go, brother. It took all afternoon, but the whole time, she was saying how she saw in us true Christians, and she hadn't seen that before. My sisters and I are now start each conversation. Well, you know, there might be a God uh, because of the people that we've met at Weimar. I, I don't know how else to say it, but, you know, that's just the way it is when you on the outside looking in wishing that you had a God, but you can't really have one because you run up against something horrific. Uh, to meet Christians that aren't horrific is something truly special. The most important work I can be doing is out there meeting people and not necessarily pouring over my nursing books. While both are important, God wants me, I think, to be on the front lines. I pray that through TCI, we can truly reveal the true character of God and His love, and that that would spark the fire to see this whole world lightened with the glory of God. So that's total community involvement. I wish I have sparked that 
idea on you guys, you know, so that you can start going out to your communities and meeting needs like that. So, a few studies, uh, this one about emotional intelligence, how emotional intelligence can be improved. Emotional intelligence, we'll talk about it in the afternoon, your ability to interact with other people, your ability to lead is directly related to emotional intelligence. We're showing how it can be improved quite fast. This one, we presented at Harvard University, how not being able to be with both parents, both biological parents, when you were growing up, those people have higher level of depression later on. And this other one, one of our patients, classic patient that comes to our program of lifestyle program. He had high blood pressure. He had a big problem with obesity. He was taking three medications and he was uh, not doing good with his health. In a matter of 18 days, we had to stop all his medications because his blood pressure came down to normal levels. He had lost seven kilos. Now he didn't say, ooh, I got better. I'm gonna go back to my hamburgers, you know? He learned his lesson. He continued with the good choices at home. In a matter of five months, he already has lost 37 kilos. He continues doing the changes. In a matter of nine months, he had lost 50 kilos. And 11 months later, we do complete blood test, blood pressure normal, cholesterol normal, prostate exam normal, but this is the most surprising number. This tells me that he is no longer diabetic. His diabetes got reversed. He's not a, a diabetic under control of exercise and diet. His diabetes reversed. In fact, BBC News um, came up with this article recently, how 70% of doctors don't know that diabetes can be reversed. Now, if the doctor doesn't know, you think it's gonna help the patient. <laughs> And that's exactly what science is showing, that type two diabetes is potentially reversible. He continues doing the changes, and in a year and a half, after losing 64 kilos, no longer hypertensive, no longer diabetic, no longer obese, you can change, you can see the change that happened on him. This is the power of the message that we have we can change lives with this message. Again, you can find all that research. If you go to that research gate page, uh, you should be able to access all of it. And so does that Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. And I'm not trying to sell you absolutely anything on those things. Everything there is completely free. So let me tell you about an interesting concept by the name of Neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is the ability of your brain to change. For example, if a little kid, just one year old, if he tries to throw a ball like this, you think it's easy for him? No, he may actually drop it behind him before he actually throws it in the form. Now, how come you guys can even Close your eyes, grab the ball, and throw that exactly where you want. You know why? Because of neural 
neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is something that God put in our brains so that the behaviors that we repeat, they start forming paths. So the next time we do them, it becomes easier. And any new skill that you learn, you can create that neuroplasticity in your brain. For example, a guitar. If you have never played a guitar, how easy is that? It's hard, isn't it? Man, even the way you put the hand, you know, it's kind of painful. And then you put the pressure on the cords and, and it hurts, you know, in your, your fingers. And then the rhythm and all this is it, like really complex. Yet, there's some people, again, in complete darkness, they can grab a guitar and play you a beautiful music. How can they can do that? What's the answer? Neuroplasticity. And see, the neurons, they are built to connect. And as they make connections, they start to make pathways. It's like a field. You know, you can have a big field of grass. If you start walking on that field on a certain area, back and forth, back and forth, what's going to happen? You're going to create what? a path and you keep walking even more that becomes even bigger and bigger and bigger but what happens if nobody walks in that path what's going to happen to that path it disappears that's exactly what happens at the level of the brain your brain has tremendous potential to change so let me show you a little bit of that potential. Second. Pedro Bacirita had a massive paralyzing stroke. At the time, it was widely believed that once brain tissue is dead, there is no real scope for recovery. The family were told there was nothing more that could be done. Pedro's elder son, George, decided to ignore the doctor's advice. He took his father home and began a series of exercises to see how far he could push his recovery. Pedro couldn't talk or walk, so George made him crawl. The neighbours were absolutely horrified at the idea that the son was making this elderly man crawl like a dog. But he started to recover, and then George made him do tasks all around the house, like washing up, and when he broke the plates, he simply replaced them with metal ones. He kept at it for three long years, by the end of which Pedro had made an almost miraculous recovery. He went back to work, he got remarried, and when he eventually died, it was not from a stroke, but from a heart attack, following a climb up a mountain. By that time, Pedro's younger son, Paul, was a neurologist. Because his father had made such a good recovery, he naturally assumed the stroke must have affected a small area of his brain. Paul took the unusual decision to go to his father's autopsy. What he saw was a complete surprise. Paul was absolutely stunned. There were huge areas of damage in his father's brain. 97% of the nerves connecting the cortex to the spinal cord had been destroyed. So how had Pedro managed to learn to walk again? Paul decided that somehow his father's brain must have learnt to reorganise itself. 
replacing the work of the dead tissue with other sections of living brain. Pedro's example showed that with the right support, stroke victims can sometimes make amazing recoveries. It helped transform how stroke victims are treated. Paul decided to dedicate his life to trying to understand what had happened to his father's brain. It's a concept we now call neuroplasticity. The idea is that your brain can, given the right stimulation, reconfigure itself, even in late adulthood. Isn't that amazing? You know, 97% of the connections between the brain and the rest of the body have been damaged. So the part of the brain that didn't get damaged relearn how to do the functions of that other part of the brain that was dead. So that son, Mr. Paul, his complete name is called Paul Bach Irita. He's uh, originally from Mexico. He continued developing the theories to help people do amazing things. Look at this one. It's on has been totally blind for 30 years but before that as a young teenager he enjoyed playing cards I think that was an eight it's fantastic Roger is testing a device based on a concept which many have found hard to believe that it's possible to see using the tongue vision through the tongue hearing through the eyes using one sense to substitute for another these concepts were the brainchildren of the late Mexican-born neuroscientist Paul Bakirita. Many considered Bakirita's brain theories heresy, yet over the course of 30 years he and his followers managed to build devices based on his ideas. In this 1976 documentary, Bakirita explained his theory. The brain is able to use information coming from the skin as if it were coming from the eyes. Bakirita was bucking the long-held assumption that after early childhood the brain was fixed, that it couldn't change. He argued that the brain was actually plastic, that it could undergo major reorganization throughout our lives. In this 2003 film, he explained, We don't see with the, with the eyes, for example. We don't hear with the ears. All of that goes on in the brain. Remember, if, you're, if, if I'm looking at you, the image of you doesn't get beyond my retina, just the back of my eye. From there to the brain, to the rest of the brain, it's pulses, pulses along nerves. Well, those pulses aren't any different than the pulses in the big toe. It's the way the information they carry is in the frequency and the pattern of pulses. And so if you can train the brain to extract that kind of information, then you don't need the eye to see. You can have an artificial eye. And this is how he went ahead and applied that knowledge. The sense of touch has been really neglected certainly in technological development. Almost everything that's ever been developed to connect something to the brain is via the eyes and the ears. His first device substituted the sense of sight for the sense of touch on the subject's back. Made from an old dentist's chair, a camera became the eyes and the light pulses were then routed to blunted needles that delivered the pattern of the object onto the back. It's a telephone, and the receiver is to the right. It's like when you were kids and your brother or sister would draw something on your back, 
you'd be you know guessing what they're drawing it's the same kind of thing this is electronically drawing it on my tongue when i trace it with my tongue i first determine at the top to see if it's rounded or it's pointed and when i see that point at the top or more pointed in the tail then i go no it's a spade amazing isn't it and look at this of the brain to change is amazing. That's why if you tell me, doctor, I cannot learn another language, I know you're lying. <laughs> Your brain has tremendous capacity to change and the ability of the brain to learn new things is amazing. Now these principles not only have been used to help somebody see with their tongue, also, other organs have benefit from that. that. What if we could present balance information? Cheryl Schiltz also lost her sense of balance. An antibiotic had destroyed the filaments in her inner ears, which transformed sound into nerve pulses. This wrecked her vestibular system, which controls balance. I said, you mean there's nothing that can be done? What do you mean permanent? There's got to be like medicine or a surgery or something. I can't live like this for the rest of my life. Are you crazy? Cheryl's life was so impaired that the thought that she would ever again work a regular job, much less ride a bike, seemed impossible. Tyler and Kazmarek built the balance device just like the vision device, but with one difference. Instead of a camera for sight, they used an accelerometer, a full motion tilt sensor in a helmet to transmit head and body position to the tongue. I was sitting in my backyard and I received a call from Dr. Baccarita. And he told me about the study that they were doing with sensory substitution. I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to put this thing on my tongue and it's going to make me feel imbalanced. Oh, sure. And I put the, uh, put the device on my tongue and asked to navigate a uh, kind of like a video game thing on a computer. Now the, the square in the middle represents the position of the head. It's in the neutral position. And then if we tip it forward, sensation moves to the tip of the tongue. So I will feel a signal moving forward or back or side to side and what that is is telling me, okay, I'm, I'm too far forward, I have to come back and put that signal back into, my, into the middle of my tongue. And that's where I know that that's where I am in balance and I'm indeed standing straight up. We saw the chair can use it immediately and very effectively. And as a matter of fact, so effectively, so the next logical question was, let's remove it and see how long she can stay without it. Her feeling of stability, what they called the retention or residual effect, lasted in direct proportion to how long she used the device. God, it's so wonderful. <laughs> From there on, we started just built on that and to eventually getting to doing a 20-minute trial. And that's 
where we recognized that there's a residual and it was like for an hour I was normal and it was just phenomenal. We realized you don't have to wear it all the time. This could be something you use twice or three times a day for 20 minutes. And what happened was the residual grew stronger and stronger and longer and longer to the point where I really didn't even need, I could skip days. And now it's like I don't, I very, very, really, very rarely use it. It rewired my brain. There's no doubt about it. Cheryl's balance system wasn't repaired. Her brain had actually developed a new one. Amazing, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. And that's why things like this can happen. This little girl, you know, had brain damage, and they were able to help reverse that brain damage because of what? What's the answer? It starts with an N. Neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity is involved anytime you learn something new. When you were a little baby and you were learning the language of your parents, your brain had to change and adapt. That required neuroplasticity. When you were maturing, you needed neuroplasticity. To learn any skill, you need neuroplasticity. And in fact, this brain change is needed even when you experience religious conversion. And you probably have heard the stories, isn't it? Somebody that was a drunkard and so forth, and suddenly, with the help of God, transformation takes place. He no longer uses alcohol now. Even their language changes. How can the brain change so much? Neuroplasticity. In fact, you want to experience some neuroplasticity, get yourself involved in a relationship. Okay? <laughs> now, your thinking is different. It's not only me, me, me. You start thinking about somebody else. And if you want the master's degree in neuroplasticity, have a child. You know? <laughs> Man, it's major change in your home, you know? Now you have to wake up at 2 in the morning and all these things, you know? And, and, and suddenly your life changes completely when there is a new child at home. So anything that requires learning, neuroplasticity can take place. Now, neuroplasticity can be a blessing but can also be a problem. It can be a blessing by the fact that the good behaviors, you repeat them and they become natural, they become part of your character. But unfortunately, bad behaviors can also be codified in your brain and that's where problems like addictions come from. And that's why it's such a hard battle for these people to overcome them because they create these pathways to their brains. Now, you are actually going through neuroplasticity at this stage. See, it takes many years for the brain to totally mature. In fact, it's going to take between 25 to 30 years for your brain to finally mature. It's going through neuroplasticity at this stage of your life. Now, the interesting thing is that the Bible talks about neuroplasticity. 
For example, Proverbs 23, 7. For as he what? Think it. The way you think changes your behavior. In the afternoon, we're going to talk about more with that um, in detail about this principle. This one. For as many as received them, to them he gave them what? Power to become. And that's why, you know, I present research sometimes at major addictions meeting. And these meetings are, are secular meetings. Yet, you go there and you're going to find words like church, Bible, prayer, and so forth. Because me, as a doctor, do you think I can change those bad patterns in the brain? I cannot. But I know of somebody that can go in that brain and change those pathways. And this is what this is talking about. You can have access and to that power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Or John 3, 7. Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be what? Born again. The change is so dramatical that is as if you have been literally born again. Or Romans 12, 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. And if you go and look on the Greek word, is the word metamorphos. Have you heard about metamorphosis? In which a worm becomes what? A butterfly. Tremendous change that can happen. By the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's how God wants to transform us. He wants this brain to change. And how does he want us to change? Philippians 2.5 Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. God wants to transform this brain in the pattern of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things what? Are become what? New. The change of those pathways, God has the power to change him. And finally, 1 Peter 1.23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. You have access to this power of neuroplasticity. Now, the environment that we have around us have a big impact on our mental health. For example, in this study, they had these rats, they had them in a horrible situation. They were all separate from one to another. They were in a dark place. They were not able to have friends or anything. And under that horrible environment, when they gave these rats the choice between morphine and water, what do you think the rats chose? Morphine, as a way to try to escape 
that horrible reality. Now, there was a second part of the experiment, and it simulated country living. They put these rats outside where they could do things like exercise, they could have friends, they could form families. And once the environment was changed, neuroplasticity started to take place in those brains. And now that they were in a different environment, when they gave them the choice between morphine and water, what do you think they chose? Water. Voluntarily, they quit. Now you may be saying, but doctor, we're not rats. <laughs> well, it's true, you're not rats, but the principle still applies. And there has been studies done on humans. For example, the veterans from America, those uh, people that were sent to fight the, the, the war of Vietnam, imagine that you are one of them. First, they send you there and you didn't even want it to go there. They had this lottery, and if your name appeared, you had to go there. And think about that environment. It is a horrible environment. You know, you are in constant fear. You don't know when the soldiers, the enemies are going to come and start shooting at you. You don't know as you're stepping, if, if you're going to step on a, on a mine, a plane can come and start throwing bombs on you. And then the friends that you have already made with other soldiers, you've seen them, how they die in front of your eyes. I mean, it is a horrible environment to be in. And that's why many of those soldiers that were under that horrible environment started getting addicted to things like heroin. Now, the war didn't last forever, and once they went back home, things change. Now, at home, many of them had loving partners, some of them had loving families, the stress level was less, the support was there, and those people that were able to change the environment, once they got home, things change. 75% of them voluntarily stop using those drugs. Once the environment changes, their behavior was able to change. And look at this very interesting study from Canada. If you look in a map, you will see that the major cities of Canada are located in the very bottom of Canada. You know, the Vancouver and Calgary and Quebec and so forth. Now, if you go on Google Maps and you zoom a little bit more, you will see that there is actually people living all over here in little towns. Who lives there? The native Canadians, the Indians from, from that area that have lived there for a long time, they have learned to deal, you know, with that very harsh weather and so forth. But scientists notice something. In those native Canadian towns, in some of them, there was a crisis of suicides. In fact, between 500 to 800 more suicides in some of those towns 
compared to the rest of Canada. This was a huge issue, and they wanted to understand what was happening. So what they did, they sent scientists to go and talk to the young people, which were the ones that were committing the suicides. And they went there to interview those young people, to ask them about the, the way they were living, what gave meaning to their life, how did they felt connected to their communities, what they looked forward to the future. But as, as they were interviewing these young people, even the way they talk was meaningless. They would say one phrase, and there was big spaces between each word. And what happened with these young people, they were completely disconnected with the rest of their communities. They would spend their times in front of television, just wasting their hours, and even their lifestyle choices reflected that. They would just eat all this junk food, and you could see there was not much meaning in their life. Those were the high suicidal rate places. Now, not everybody was like that. There were other communities in which the young people did had stories to tell. In fact, when you interviewed them, you could see how they were excited to live there in those communities. They were involved even at the level of the uh, government of their communities. They spoke the language of their ancestors. The old people used to tell them the stories of their ancestors, how they came there and, and so forth. They knew their place in the community. They were proud of their inheritance and they would look forward to the future. In those communities, suicidal rates were very small. So can you see the importance of connections and the choices that we take? In fact, as this researcher proposes, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is what? Connection. And that's why it's so important that we are connected. Now we're having a crisis in today's society in which there are many people that are disconnected. Their focus is just to make money and they're just addicted to their work and they don't have connections with others. In the old days, at least they used to go to some church and, 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 and meet with people and be connected. But there are many people that go through life completely disconnected with others. And that's why that spiritual factor is such an important thing for your mental health. As you spend time, you know, in connection with others, that is good for you. Social isolation has never been a good thing. And there is other group of people that have gone through difficult times. There is something that is called adverse childhood events, in which when they were growing up, there was traumatic things that happened in their life that created 
negative neuroplasticity in their brains and that affects their future. For example, this is a quiz that is used to determine if somebody has had those adverse childhood events. I'm gonna go quickly through the quiz of 10 questions. Please don't raise your hand, okay? <laughs> Answer them up here in your head. First question. Before your 18th birthday, did a parent or an adult in your household, often or very often, swear at you, insult you, put you down, or humiliate you, or act in a way that made you afraid that you might be physically hurt? Second question, before your 18th birthday, if somebody in your household pushed, grabbed, slapped, threw something at you, or ever hit you so hard that you had marks or were injured? Before your 18th birthday, did somebody in your home try or did sexually abuse you? Before your 18th birthday, did somebody in your household very often or often you felt that nobody in your family loved you or you thought that you were not important or special or your family didn't look out for each other or felt close to each other or support each other? Before your 18th birthday, did you often or very often feel that you didn't have enough to eat, you had to wear dirty clothes, and you had nobody to protect you, or your parents were too drunk or too high to take care of you or take you to a doctor if you needed? Before your 18th birthday, was a biological parent ever lost to you through divorce, abandonment, or other reasons? Before your 18th birthday, was your mother or your stepmother often or very often pushed, grabbed, slapped, or had something thrown at her? Or sometimes often or very often kicked, bitten, hit with a fist, or hit with something hard? Or ever repeatedly hit over at least a few minutes or threatened with a gun or a knife? Before your 18th birthday, did you live with anybody who was a problem drinker or alcoholic or who had used street drugs? Before your 18th birthday, was a household member depressed or mentally ill, or did a household member attempt suicide? And finally, 10, before your 18th birthday, did, you, did a household member go to prison? And see, these are called the adverse childhood events. You can classify them in three big groups. Abuse, any type of abuse, neglect, or a household that is dysfunctional. Yet, it's interesting, even in the Bible, there are some households that was like that. If you remember, isn't it, Joseph and his brothers, you know, that was a very dysfunctional household that was taking place, yet God was able to use those situations and refine characters and the members of those households were able to get victory. Now, these adverse childhood events have serious impact at the level of the brain. People with those adverse childhood events, when you do a scan of the brain, you can see that there are areas that are underdeveloped. Yet, what did we just learn? Neuro what? Plasticity. So even somebody that has grown 
in this very dysfunctional household, God can do something about it because the brain can and will change. And you can see those changes at the level of imaging. Now, the first time they run that survey was back in 1998 in California. And you know, they run that survey among people that were mostly white, middle to upper class, they had college degrees, and they had good jobs on healthcare. Yet, under that very uh, privileged type of group, when they started quantifying, they realized that among that group, 66% of them had at least one adverse childhood event, which tells us that these adverse childhood events can happen in many settings. And not only that, if there was one of those adverse childhood events, there was an 87% chance there was going to be another one present. So it means that these adverse childhood events, they seldom occur by themselves. Usually they happen in groups. And also, the more the number of those childhood events, the more likely there were going to be long-term effects. And they started tracing things like sickness, things like visit to the ER, things like missing your work, things like relationship problems, things like legal problems. You could link these things to having adverse childhood events. So the problem with those adverse childhood events is that they affect the person in the future. The person, for example, doesn't feel safe. The person lives in constant fear. The person has problems trusting in others. The person has shame that is not true shame. They start putting guilt on them that, is actually, that actually doesn't belong to them. They have problems connecting with others and having connections in the relationships. Their self-worth is low. They, and one of the problems is that many times they start running the tape over and over again of those adverse childhood events in their head. And that is not good. Because that, what do we just say about neuroplasticity? The more you walk in the path, what happens? The more wider it becomes. So that's something we need to tell the people that have had these things. Stop running these things in your head. The more you run it, the more severe it becomes. And this is not a prophecy. This is, if you don't do anything about it, this is what could potentially happen. People have high risk of cancer, 460 times more likely to end up with depression, 20 times percent more likely to end up with autoimmune conditions, shorter lifespan, and even heart disease increases. Again, this is not a prophecy. This is what can happen if you don't deal with the root cause of the issue. But you know, 
Even though it has big effects, these adverse childhood events, God is able to create neuroplasticity on those brains. And God can bring healing. And that's what we see among our patients. There are more than 8,000 people that have done our depression program. And I can tell you, the power of God is tremendous. He is able to bring healing, not only on the body, as I was showing you in the study with this man, but also of the mind. And you know, as you look around you, you see that these things are very common. For example, this singer back in the 80s had this song about it. She says, what does love have to do with it? Love is but a second-hand emotion. What does love have to do with it? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? And you know, when she wrote that song, it became the most popular song, not only in America, but around the world. Why do you think it became so popular? Because people were identifying with those traumas. In fact, if you go and look at her life, you could clearly see that at least she had eight out of these 10 adverse childhood events. And the view of intimacy and love got distorted because of that. Now, if you are ever studying psychology, you're gonna come across this man. In fact, psychologists say that he is the second most influential psychotherapist in history. And Albert Ellis, at the beginning of his career, said the following. He says that having religious belief was synonymous at having mental problems. In fact, he said that the more closely you follow those religious beliefs, the more disturbed you were. Now, Albert Ellis was not only a theoretical person, he was a practical person. He was seeing patients every day. And after practicing his psychology among his patients, his opinion changed. Years later, he published in a secular journal, he writes the following. He says, I think I can safely say that the Judeo-Christian Bible is a self-help book that has probably enabled more people to make more extensive and intensive personality and behavioral changes than all the professional therapists combined. He started noticing that. The people that were being connected and reading the Bible, that Bible and applying those principles, he noticed the change that was happening inside of them. So even somebody that has had those adverse childhood events can tap into this power to bring healing in their lives. Now, notice the following interesting fact. Albert Ellis is actually an atheist. So he's not even a believer that he's trying, you know, to, to say these things. Yet, 
His opinion has changed as he has seen the result that the Bible can have in the lives of people. And today, he understands that having a loving God in your life is actually, he says, psychologically healthy. And today you go to the scientific literature and you will see that some of the most successful psychological therapies incorporate that spiritual, that faith-based approach, that type of therapy is much more effective. So in closing, let me show you this very interesting program. There is this uh, group that helps people stop uh, uh, alcohol use. It's called Alcoholic Anonymous. Have you guys heard about that place, okay, that, that group? It's a group, a support group that helps people overcome alcohol. So they had these people that were trying to stop alcohol, and what they did, they did studies of the function of the brain to see what was happening in the brains of those people as they were participating in the program. Now, they divided the group among three, three groups. The first group was those that were reading the Alcoholic Anonymous prayers. The second group was a group that was reading irrelevant news, which is most news today, isn't it? <laughs> and the third group was people that were just watching passively and then they run the scan so that they could just compare among these three groups. Now, when we're talking about addictions, we can summarize that in the following way. We have what is called bottom-up control. This is the type of person that is struggling with the addiction. Bottom-up, it means your limbic system is the one controlling and the frontal lobe is suppressed. That's why the person has problems saying no to the addiction. But we have also the top-down. Top-down is what we want on somebody with addictions. It means the frontal lobe is activated and is able to say no to the addictive behavior instead of the bottom up. Now, what was the prayer that they were saying that was helping these people among those three groups, the ones with the prayer, were the ones that were able to when the craving of the alcohol came, were able to overcome that. What was that prayer that they were praying? That prayer was, we make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood. Now, who else prayed a similar prayer? Jesus prayed a similar prayer. When he was about to go in the cross, he realized the enormity of this, and he prayed that prayer. We find it on Luke 22:42, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, what? Not my will, but what? Now, please notice 
What happened after Jesus prayed that prayer? Look at what says in the next verse. And there appeared what? An angel unto him from heaven is strengthening him. So when we pray that prayer, we have access to that power. An angel comes and help us and he doesn't leave us alone. That's what happened to these alcoholic anonymous people. As they were struggling with their addiction and they prayed that prayer, that caused a strength of their will so that they could say no to the addiction and go forward. So, in closing, I want to leave you with the verse of Matthew 19.26 that says, but Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God what? All things are possible. So it doesn't matter the traumatic events that we may have had in our childhood. For God there is no impossible. He can come and bring healing to the mind. So these next two sessions, uh, if you're struggling with, addic with addictions, if you're struggling with anxiety, if you're struggling with depression, I want you to please come because we'll be talking a little bit more on the practical side of things, how that healing can take place. So may you be blessed. May you be able to access and tap into this power in your life so that that transformation and neuroplasticity can take place. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for being a loving God that is willing and able to help us. Lord, some of us are struggling with mental health issues, with addictions, with behaviors that we know they're not right. But we know that you can create a change in our brain. Help us to trust in you. Help us to allow you to let you in in our lives so that you can transform us to your image. We thank you for being able to do this and willing. And we thank you for your love in each of our lives. In the name of Jesus, amen.